Are you ready to unlock the true potential of your body and mind? Introducing Analemma Coherent Water, a revolutionary new way to improve your health and well-being. Analemma has been clinically proven to significantly increase ATP levels. These are the mitochondrial energy of your body. It significantly improves your gut health by improving the state of your microbiome and provides up to 12 years of biological age rejuvenation within three months of drinking this water. Imagine having more energy, a healthier gut, a clearer mind, and a youthful body. With Analemma water, it all stops being a dream. Take the first step towards unlocking your true potential. Try Analemma water and revolutionize your life. Visit coherent-water.com. Every purchase comes with a 100% money-back guarantee. You can literally taste the difference risk-free. Go to coherent-water.com. Don't forget to put in the code GENIUS10 to get some money off. Join the water revolution. Again, go to coherent-water.com and put in the code GENIUS10 for a discount. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Dr. Elsa Morano. She's a director, part of the Norman E. Borlaug Institute for International Agriculture and Development. She's um, at Texas A&M. As an, well, she was an associate professor for a while, dealt with food safety. And uh, now she's doing more new, exciting stuff. So we're going to talk about her current work. Elsa, thanks for coming. Well, it's my pleasure. And I'm a full professor. You know, that's... <laughs> it's... Yeah, well, I realized that it was, it was 20-some years ago. So yeah, you definitely would be full now. So that's great. Thank you, Richard, for having me. Yeah, no problem. Tell me about your current research. Sure. Well, the Norman Borlaug Institute for International Agriculture, as the name implies, the work that we do here is international agriculture, and we work in developing countries all around the world. So Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean. And what we do is our mission, frankly, is to really follow the teachings, if you will, and the legacy of Dr. Norman Borlaug, which is to elevate smallholder farmers. These are individual family farmers out of poverty and hunger through science. And so that is what we do. So whether it's a crop that they're growing or, or livestock or some processing uh, of, of products, water, conservation, sustainable practices of farming, whatever it may be that has to do with helping these farmers be able to, to frankly, produce an agricultural crop or livestock or whatever for which there's a market so they can sell it. What their um, use is it that they're growing things that don't have high value or is it that the farming itself, they don't, you know, they're having problems, uh, you know, getting fertilizer or growing properly? Like what, what causes a lot of farmers to be in poverty? All of the above, you know, it starts with frankly uh, producing something for which there's a market, meaning that either the quality that of their production needs to be improved so that they can compete, you know, in the marketplace as they, you know, export products and things of that nature, or it's a product that there's a demand for it, you know. And one of the things that we found out early on is that, for example, if we help a farmer and, and their family 
grow potatoes. And every farmer in that area grows potatoes. That's fine. But if everybody's growing potatoes, you know, there's a lot of competition. And frankly, if all then you have is potatoes to eat as the farmer and his family, then you're certainly not going to be well nourished. You are not able to sell your crops because there's really not a market for it because of the competition. So you're going to stay poor and all you're eating is that. Whereas if we help farmers identify a crop for which there's a market, let's say, and it, it depends on the country. It really, really does. It could be meat products. It could be coffee. It could be spices. It could be crops. Then, I would, then why would a farmer in a given country not be aware of what sells and what the prices are? Like, what? Why is there a disconnect? Because they don't have the connection to economics and the marketplace. These are family farms. You know, these are folks that have grown up in the most poor parts of a country, growing whatever it is that they're growing. They don't have the ability, the knowledge. And frankly, a lot of times it takes money. You have to buy to grow a certain kind of crop. You have to buy fertilizer, other kinds of inputs, and they don't have the money. So there has to be a situation where they have access to credit and things of that nature. And not every country provides that to their citizens. Well, I mean, to give like a really crude example, you know, some farmers, I'm sure in, you know, South America, Central America, you know, would grow cocaine because there's a lot more money in it than coffee or whatever they may grow. So why would they be able to do that, figure that out and other farmers can't? Like, what do you think the, uh, the difference is? Well, I mean, there's a lot of uh, restrictions. It's a good thing by any means, but at least they, they figured out, okay, economically. It's, there's restrictions, there's regulations, there's, you know, who's going to then go to the market. And to be honest with you, what happens with farmers, whatever it is that they're producing in developing countries, okay, is that they get, they get taken advantage of by the exporters a lot of times. So, so it's really a multiple series of things that, that I keep these farmers poor. Now I will tell you this, for example, just to give you a good example, we did, uh, we've done many, many projects, but Good example is a project we did in Rwanda where there was a company, a multinational company that makes herbicides and pesticides, and they have a line of all-natural herbicides. And so they know that in Rwanda, this company figured that in Rwanda, they grow wild this flower out of which they can extract this essential oil and use it in their products. So the company approached us because we had a lot of experience working in Rwanda and said, hey, can you help us go into Rwanda and help farmers produce these flowers in, so that they can then sell it to us, you know, and we can have enough to make our product. And so what we did, and this is, you know, pretty formulaic, is we, we went in there, we got farmers that uh, were not growing the crop, it was just growing wild, but we got them together into a, a farmer cooperative. Very important. Why? Because when you have a group of farmers working together in a cooperative or their members, uh, they have more power in terms of being able to sell their products because they're together. They also can access credit a lot easier from banks, okay, to buy whatever it is that they need. Plus also we train them on how to grow these flowers very efficiently, cost efficiently, so that they they don't water them too much or or not enough and, and don't put too many fertilizers or, or not enough, you know, so that it's as efficient as possible, which we have the knowledge to do that here at Texas A&M. And then they were able to then sell those flowers to the government of Rwanda, which then had a, a facility where they extracted this essential oil and then they sold it to the company. So it was a beautiful thing because 
the farmer's income went up tremendously. You know, the country itself did well. They were able to sell their product very simply to a company that really needed it. And frankly, and they did it in such a cost-effective way that they were able to send their kids to school, buy medicines for them and so forth. So, you know, when you elevate them out of poverty because you help them produce whatever it is that needs to be produced efficiently, it makes all the sense in the world. When the project was over and we left, they're still going, going strong. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, I'm sure they do need to form communities, though, because otherwise, mm-hmm. I don't know, people will extort them, beat them up, take their stuff. You know, I mean, who knows? I'm sure that's... Well, they that, don't that. have the same access to, to markets. They just don't because they're seen as, okay, here's one person. You know, they're not, they don't have the strength of experience and supplies and facilities, you know, and employees. Are you ready to unlock the true potential of your body and mind? Introducing Analemma Coherent Water, a revolutionary new way to improve your health and well-being. Analemma has been clinically proven to significantly increase ATP levels. These are the mitochondrial energy of your body. It significantly improves your gut health by improving the state of your microbiome and provides up to 12 years of biological age rejuvenation within three months of drinking this water. Imagine having more energy a healthier gut, a clearer mind, and a youthful body. With Analemma water, it all stops being a dream. Take the first step towards unlocking your true potential. Try Analemma water and revolutionize your life. Visit coherent-water.com. Every purchase comes with a 100% money-back guarantee. You can literally taste the difference risk-free. Go to coherent-water.com. Don't forget to put in the code GENIUS10 to get some money off. Join the water revolution. Again, go to coherent-water.com and put in the code GENIUS10 for a discount. They can't be everything. They can't farm and take it to the distributors. And, and then, you know, like there's a, a bunch of people on the chain. So one person can do everything at that time to live. No, very good. Absolutely. So at the farmer level, I understand you teach them, train them, you know, have them form groups and all that. But what if the product requires a couple of other levels, like, you know, local people that will gather from X number of farmers and take it to market, you know, or take it to bigger distributors, which will then take it to bigger ones. Mm-hmm. Or is that usually unnecessary? Is that like an artificial right. thing that involves some corruption? It's a whole chain. And we work with all the elements of the chain from starting with the producers, the farmers themselves, obviously. And sometimes, by the way, we help them with introducing varieties of whatever crop that maybe are more resilient to the conditions that they're finding themselves in. Because that's one of the other issues with a lot of these countries is you go from flooding to drought conditions. They don't have the technology and equipment to irrigate their crops like we do here. So they they rely on rainfall, which may or may not come at the right time. So all of that stuff, we help them at the production level. But then we go on and help them on the processing, on the marketing and also, frankly, a lot of it has to do with policies in the country. So we work with the ministries of agriculture of those countries because for them to sell a product, for example, to export it, it has to meet standards of safety and quality. And so we help the, the governments there figure out, okay, what are those standards? How do they then are able to help these farmers achieve those standards and monitor that those are achieved on a consistent basis so that a country that is buying that particular product can rely on the fact that, hey, the country government is ensuring that these products are meeting our requirements. So it's it's all of the above, to be honest. Yeah. From a very cynical point of view, why would uh, Texas A&M do this? And why would, you know, 
organizations in the U.S. do this unless they were going to get the, you know, the exports of the product? Well, I'll tell you, there's several reasons, okay? One good reason is that when a country is able to stand itself up in terms of being able to produce agricultural products that we would like to buy, you know, we import from them, that's great. It helps them, it helps us. But then also they become a trade partner, okay? By trading with us, then we, we sell them some things. And so it's a, it's a relationship that gets built up and it helps them and helps us. So that's one very practical reason, okay? Another very practical reason, which actually was at the heart of the legacy of Dr. Borlaug, he said, peace cannot be built on empty stomachs or on human misery, meaning that when people around the world are poor, they're hungry, they have no future because they don't, they can't, they don't have enough food, diverse enough to eat, you know, they rebel, conflict follows, they take over, they, they, you know, fight the government. And when there's conflict and wars, usually it's all soldiers end up going to, you know, try to make some peace. And so it affects us directly, you know, and so we cannot just live in our bubble here and ignore what goes on in other parts of the world because it, it comes back to haunt us, you know, eventually, because we are all very interconnected. So that's another very important reason to help these countries that are not doing so well, because we're preventing conflict as opposed to having to go in there once conflict has started and do something about it. So, so that's an important thing. And then third, you know, frankly, the very good reason that, you know, it's humanity. You know, how do we do nothing when we know that there's people starving to death, you know, just on the other side of the border, for example? You know, it, it makes no sense. You know, we need to be good neighbors. Like I say, it, it helps us in many ways, but it, it also is something that is as people, you know, we, we want to help others. You know, that's certainly something that we as human beings should do is to help each other as much as, as we can. Because that could be us, but by the grace of God. How do you make sure that the things you put in place don't become corrupted later on? You know, what happens if you guys leave and then some local, you know, person comes in and tries to extort the farmers to say, like, you're going to come through me now and I'm going to collect, you know, a fee and I'm going to distribute it and all that. How do you make sure that it doesn't fall apart? It, it first begins by the fact that we work not in every country, okay? Countries differ in terms of their degree of stability, okay? It's impossible, really, to work in a country where, where that is completely unstable because the government is a mess. And as you just indicated, people do whatever they want and, you know, criminal elements do whatever they want. That's very, very difficult. So we try to work in countries where at least there's some modicum of stability where the government you know, at least if they don't have the tools and the know-how, we can help them. We can, you know, inform them so that they can do their jobs better. But it, it has to begin that way, that the government has to, to be willing to help its citizens and do its work. If it's not doing it because they don't have the resources and so forth, then that's, that can be fixed. But if, if you have a corrupt government that's going to look the other way and not help its, its farmers, very, very difficult to work in a place like that. And a good example is Haiti, okay, which is a country that we would love to work and help those farmers there. But it's it's really very, very difficult right now for the very reasons that you stated. Okay. Um, how do you guys identify um, what projects to work on? Okay. No, I work on. 
Part of it is we uh, get most of our funding, almost all of our funding from the U.S. government, from the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, it's called. It's part of the Department of State. And USAID, what they do is they identify countries where, as I said, are stable enough, but they're in need and so forth. And so they identify those countries. They call them Feed the Future countries because Feed the Future is the name of the program that they have where they fund institutions like us to do something in those countries and help those people. So they help a lot in that they identify those countries where we can work. Okay? They're stable enough, if you will. And so we respond to proposals that they that USAID puts out uh, to work in a variety of countries. And so we, depending on what it is that is being asked to to be done and what experience and expertise we have, we will submit proposals and get funded to do the work. And so off we go to the country and we typically employ local folks to to work in our offices there as well as, you know, staff that we locate there. But then our experts, the faculty, it's not like they're going to go there and live there for several years. No, they stay here, but they go every whatever period of time for a week or two to do demonstrations, to do whatever it is that needs to be done with their expertise, with our staff down in the country managing everything and making the schedules for, you know, the training programs for the farmers setting up a demonstration farm where the various varieties of whatever crop can be shown how to grow them and what are the strategies that are used in planting and uh, irrigation and everything else like that so that you're as efficient as possible and you do it in a sustainable climate smart way so that you're minimizing the production of greenhouse gases and so forth and you're trying to capture as much carbon in the soil. And there's a lot of strategies that are used that our faculty here, our experts know what to do. So that's how we operate, to be honest with you. So it ends up being a variety of countries, as I say, in sub-Saharan Africa. Also in Latin America, is really Central America, to be honest with you. It's Honduras, Nicaragua, Guatemala, El Salvador. Those are the countries. Uh, it's not really South America because the world is kind of divided into the low-income countries, which are the poorest, middle-income countries, and then high-income countries. Obviously, the U.S., Canada, European Union countries, those are all the high-income countries, Australia, et cetera. South America is where you have more than middle income to high income. And then the ones that we focus on are those low-income countries. So it's Central America for the most part, Sub-Saharan Africa, and parts of Asia. Um, once you get the agreement of a country's government, what's your process? Do you go and interview farmers and find out their problems? And like, you know, how do you like, what are the the main milestones in this process once you start? And let me clarify that we don't get an agreement from the from the country. They've already worked that out at USA, that the country is allowing, you know, experts to come in and work with farmers. But to answer your question, what we do is an assessment first of where where are the farmers in terms of a specific crop, for example, in terms of uh, where are the farmer groups and are there cooperatives already or not. And we do all of that fact-finding or assessment, if you will, ahead of time as we're submitting the proposal so that when we submit the proposal, we know what we're going to do when we get funded. So once we get funded, we go in there, establish our office, like I said, and begin the process of working with, with groups of farmers, establishing cooperatives if we need to, or unless they already have cooperatives and, and meeting with the heads of those cooperatives, establishing perhaps a, a farm 
where we can do demonstrations and training. If it's a matter of developing new varieties, you know, we work with those farmer groups to to work in their farms to see what can be done in terms of uh, adjusting some mm-hmm. of the the growing conditions uh, to maximize production. Okay, and we frankly uh, provide a, a report on a regular basis then to USAID, our funder as well as make presentations so that people start to see what the impact is. And once we have done that, typically then you see that other farmers in that region start to to then get interested. And so that information hopefully get delivered even beyond those initial groups of farmers that we that we worked with. So it's an interesting process. It, it's worked very, very well for us. What we do is then maintain a, a good working relationship with the Ministry of Agriculture of that particular country so that the the folks in that ministry, they themselves are trained. We train them so that when we leave, they can continue to train farmers, you know, because that's the important thing. We, we like to work ourselves out of a job, if you will. You know, we do our project and we want to be able to, when we leave, that we left enough there so that people know what to do going forward. They, they don't depend on us because then that's not, you know, it's a hand up, not a hand out, as we like to say it. You know, we're helping them to help themselves. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I don't know, any interesting stories of projects that you worked on that um, either went really well and had like a surprising good results or like a strange complication happened that, I don't know, really like threw you for a loop, but yeah, you guys solved. Any good stories from the field? Well, we and we have all kinds of stories, I can tell you. There's even stories where, you know, unfortunately, and this happened to us in, in South Sudan, um, conflict broke out, okay? And we had to leave the project. Just that's what happens sometimes in, in countries is that uh, situations get to a point where you cannot continue to be there for, for safety reasons and so forth. So that has happened to us. We have worked in, in places where, for example, we have a big project, small-scale irrigation, okay? I alluded to it earlier that sometimes farmers in rural areas and, and countries in Africa don't have the equipment and the, the ability to irrigate crops. So what typically happens is the woman of the household, you know, gets a big bucket, you know, puts it on her head, walks miles to the nearest lake or river or source of water, fills it up and brings it back after hours of, again, walking with this thing on our head. And that's the amount of water that has to be used not only by the family to, you know, for their hygiene and, and food preparation and everything like that, but is the water that they have to irrigate the crops that they're trying to sell. Well, as you can imagine, that's just not enough. That doesn't cut it. And so when they have drought periods, that's just horrific situation. So what we've done in in parts of Africa, Mali is one place where I can give you an example, is we introduced solar-powered pump, 250 bucks, pretty cheap, frankly, where we would set it up in a a farmer's land and uh, be able to pump water out of the ground. Because in in a lot of those countries, there are wells, they're just very deep and they don't have a way to, to pump the water out because there's no electricity and so forth. And so they are able to pump the water, then they have enough water, more than enough water, to irrigate their crops, have water for the family use. The mom doesn't have to go walking for miles anymore. And importantly, and this was kind of a a side uh, benefit that we did not anticipate, because the mom has now all kinds of time, you know, and is able to work in the field with her husband, you know, to, to produce her crops. But now she has 
enough time that she starts, and this is what they're doing, a horticulture garden in their backyard, in their farm. So growing fruits and vegetables, which are very nutritious, okay? And so it has diversified the diet in the household, in those households. And we have been able to measure that the increase in vitamin A, vitamin C, the B vitamins and so forth in the diets of of the children and these families. And I should tell you that, you know, most people may not know this, that around the world in developing countries, one out of every three kids is stunted. That's 33%. That means out of three kids, one kid is stunted. And what that means is that his or her little brain did not develop properly in the mother's womb because the mom didn't, wasn't able to eat, you know, enough foods that were nutritious and so forth. So the, the baby's brain never really developed. So that baby is born and it doesn't matter if that later on in life, the baby is able to get enough food. The brain never did develop when the brain is supposed to be developing in the womb. And so uh, that's a horrific fact. And so when we have a project like this, where our aim was to help them irrigate their crops so they could sell them and, and so forth, we didn't realize that they would then be able to have enough time to grow these these very nutritious crops, fruits and vegetables, and that that impacted in a very, very positive way the nutritional uh, situation of the family. Very, very interesting. Yeah. What what kinds of innovations are you working on, though, in, in your... Uh, I know there's identifying these opportunities, that there's the teams that, you know, work with USA to implement. But what is, is your role? Like, what is the uh, other research questions that... You know, you're always looking for new plants to match to, to, you know, new environments. Or like, what is the research component of this? Yes. And to be honest with you, we are so lucky here at Texas A&M to be in the state of Texas because we're huge as a state. And as a result, we have a a variety of different, you know, uh, soil types around the state of Texas, different temperature gradients, water gradients, and so forth. And so... The crops that our scientists here have developed, you know, be it corn or wheat or sorghum or, you know, whatever it may be, to grow in the particular part of Texas that's, you know, maybe suffering from droughts or whatever it may be, is very helpful because then there's a lot of these uh, developing countries that have similar conditions as what we have in some parts of Texas. So we have developed a variety of rice, for example, that, you know, grows in a part of Texas that, you know, we have to develop our own uh, varieties because it's different than Arkansas, for example, or, or Louisiana. It so happens then that that variety grows really well in a particular country in, in sub-Saharan Africa or in Asia because they have similar conditions as we have here in Texas. So, so we have a tremendous advantage compared to, you know, the Midwest, which, you know, they have their specific conditions there. But we, we really have a gradient of, of conditions that give us that ability to have our faculty already have developed a lot of things that we can then apply to developing countries. They develop them for Texas, but they work in these developing countries. Hmm. Okay, well, very good. Well, so what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and these programs? Where can they go? Thank you very much. We have, of course, a presence on the web website, Borlaug Institute. If you just type that, Google that, you'll find us. And you will see where we work, as I alluded to, all over the world. You'll also read a little bit about the history of the, our namesake, Norman Borlaug. A lot of people may not have heard of Norman Borlaug. He actually was not even from Texas. He was from Iowa. Okay, He grew up at a time in Iowa when uh, there were 
a lot of droughts and, and you know, the, the dust storms of that time. Anyway, he became a, a plant scientist, uh, a breeder. And so he went to work in the 1960s at a research facility, a research center in Mexico. It's a center uh, that's an international research center that works on maize and wheat. And so he developed a variety of wheat that in the 1960s, at that time in history, there were countries that were starving to death, Mexico, Pakistan, India. And so what he did is he developed a variety that would grow really well in these countries. And so what that did, frankly, is, you know, he saved, in fact, he's been credited with having saved more lives than any other human being. He saved a billion, with a B, a billion lives. As a result, in 1970, he was given the Nobel Peace Prize for his work. So a tremendous figure. And, you know, you can imagine at that time he had to talk with Indira Gandhi to convince her to let the seeds of his wheat variety come into India. And he did. And it saved. It saved people. So he got the Nobel Prize in 1970. He also, you know, got other prizes during his career. He... um got the Presidential Medal of Science from President George W. Bush in 2006. I was uh, lucky to be there with, with Dr. Borlaug. In fact, I got to know Dr. Borlaug. I should say this to you, that he's, after he retired, his family was living in Dallas. So because he was in Dallas and several of our faculty got to know him because uh, they were breeders as well, they convinced him to come teach part-time at Texas A&M. So once a year, he, he would come down and give a few lectures. And in 1995, when I came to Texas A&M as a professor, is when I got to meet Dr. Borlaug. He was, you know, very unassuming person, but what a what a figure, what an inspiration. So, uh, so he taught here the last 25 years of his life, more or less. So in 2006, he was given the Presidential Medal of Science by President George W. Bush, and in 2007, he was given, you know, an incredible award, the Congressional Gold Medal in 2007. This Congress doesn't give that medal to just anybody. And frankly, if you go to Washington, D.C. and you go to the Capitol, there's statues of all kinds of, you know, famous people. You know, every state of the union can have up to two statues of their famous, you know, son or daughter. And so the state of Iowa basically petitioned that they would be able to put the statue of Dr. Borlaug on his hundredth, what would have been his hundredth birthday. He died in when he was 95 in 2009. So I was in the Capitol building 2014 when uh, they uh, unveiled his statue in Statuary Hall there in the Capitol, not too far from Thomas Jefferson's statue and some other very important people. So he was the real thing. And so we live here in uh, all of his work, but then also to try to not let him down, okay, to continue to do the work that you know, being a hunger fighter, which is what he was. And frankly, one of the things we do too is we work with uh, with young people to because he was very much a believer in youth development, developing the next group of hunger fighters, if you will, the next generation. And so he was a tremendously inspiring person. I can tell you that, you know, the things that he would say to me I still are engraved in my head. But I will leave you with this very quick story. He when I first met him, 1995-ish, um, we were having lunch after an event, I think maybe the year later or so. And, and so he was very unassuming, little old man kind of, you know, sitting there and we were talking. And and so I knew who he was, of course. And so he says to me, so so Dr. Moreno, what, what do you do here? 
And I had just been hired basically as a food microbiologist. Food safety is, is my area of expertise. And I said, well, Dr. Borlaug, I'm a food microbiologist. And so he looked at me and he says, so what do you do that helps people directly? And I said, well, I conduct research on foodborne pathogens that can contaminate food, salmonella, et cetera, you know, to try to, uh, you know, mitigate contamination. He says, yeah, but that's you in the lab. What do you do that helps people directly? And I said, well, I publish those results and I present them at scientific meetings. And says, yeah, but that's you uh, with other scientists like you. What do you do that helps people directly? So at this point, I'm thinking, okay, what, what am I going to say here? Uh, well, Dr. Borlaug, I teach. Those are people, you know, my students here at Texas A&M. So he smiles at me and says, yes, but you're teaching them to become like you. What do you do that helps people directly? So finally, of course, Richard, I said, nothing, Dr. Borlaug. Okay. <laughs> and so he looked at me and then had his little old man finger pointed at me with a big smile on his face. And he said, it's up to you that whatever you do in life helps people directly. And boy, little did I know then, 1996 or so, that how my career was going to develop and that one day I was going to be... Um, leading the his namesake institute, the Norman Borlaug Institute for International Agriculture. I've been the director for about 11 years, and it's just been tremendously fulfilling. And he was absolutely right. Life is short. We need to do things that matter, and we need to do the things that help people directly. And so as we go around the world in our projects, you know, we see how other people live. And, you know, there by the grace of God, go I. You know, that could be me. And so we... Yeah, we have to help people because that could be us. And what we do and when we leave a country and people are doing for themselves, there's no better feeling. Yeah, yeah. They, they should have a huge statue of Borlaug in the lobby pointing his finger and looking. So when you walk in, you're like, and he's pointing his finger at you. And yeah, says, well, I'll try to be, we actually have a miniature version here in the office of his statue that's in Capitol Hill. So what we do is whenever we submit a proposal, go up to the top of his head, you know, he's wearing a hat and I rub it for good luck, you know. <laughs> so, but you, we do feel his presence here. And like I said, we interacted with him greatly. We have a lot of his memorabilia here at the Borlaug Institute. Family has his, his medals, okay? But we have some uh, replicas and so forth. But we also have a lot of his documents and many pictures. Like I said, I had a excellent relationship with him. I, I had the privilege to go see him on his last week of life. He was, uh, he had cancer. And so he was in Dallas and uh, 95 years of age. I, I still believe that if he had not gotten cancer, he'd still be alive today. He was that tough. But he said to me, as he was there, his last week of life, he was in hospice in his living room. And he said, Elsa, don't let the dream die. So my gosh, you know, uh, how do you how do you do anything more than, you know, continue to be dedicated to this work? His daughter, uh, Jeannie Borlaug, is a retired teacher uh, living in Dallas. His granddaughter, Julie Borlaug, actually used to work for us here at the Borlaug Institute. Uh, very dedicated to carrying forward his, his legacy. And Jeannie told me, actually, that the day that Dr. Borlaug died in 2009, surrounded by family, I said to her, well, tell me, what, what were his last words? Okay. I love you. You know, what, what, what did he say? And she said, no, actually his last words, his last breath, he said, take it to the farmer. 
what he meant by that is is the training take the knowledge the the scientific discovery and things that we've been able to develop here take it to the farmer give it to the farmer for him or her to to use to employ to improve their lives don't just publish papers and okay that's great but take it to the farmer take the knowledge to the farmer so incredible excellent well so it's been really good to speak to you and Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And, uh, you know, it's cool that you, well, I guess you hold the highest regard, the welfare of these people you're trying to help. Like you said, uh, you know, we usually all could be in their place. So it's nice to hear that. I appreciate being here. Well, thank you so much, Richard. And really, everyone, do what you can to help others. You know, we're in this together. Are you ready to unlock the true potential of your body and mind? Introducing Analemma Coherent Water, a revolutionary new way to improve your health and well-being. Analemma has been clinically proven to significantly increase ATP levels. These are the mitochondrial energy of your body. This significantly improves your gut health by improving the state of your microbiome and provides up to 12 years of biological age rejuvenation within three months of drinking this water. Imagine having more energy, a healthier gut, a clearer mind, and a youthful body. With Analemma water, it all stops being a dream. Take the first step towards unlocking your true potential. Try Analemma water and revolutionize your life. Visit coherent-water.com. Every purchase comes with a 100% money-back guarantee. You can literally taste the difference risk-free. Go to coherent-water.com. Don't forget to put in the code GENIUS10 to get some money off. Join the water revolution. Again, go to coherent-water.com and put in the code GENIUS10 for a discount. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.